Udi. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, proudly brought to you by our title sponsor, We Cure. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Looking for a smile makeover? Your smile says a lot about you. Whether you're looking for a natural smile or a full Hollywood smile makeover, your vision of the perfect smile can be achieved with We Cure. We Cure's goal is to connect dental patients from all over the UK with internationally accredited dental institutions in Turkey. They will seamlessly combine your procedure with a relationship relaxing holiday in the Mediterranean with all conveniences included. For more information, please visit weekyour.co.uk slash big travel podcast for an exclusive offer for big travel podcast listeners or follow them on Instagram at weekyouruk. And now on to today's guest. TV baker and food judge Cynthia Stroud grew up in Nigeria, learning about budgeting by seeing her grandfather being paid in chickens and goats. She learnt about baking from her mother and having moved to the UK went from living on £10 a week to running her £1 million cake-making business, Pretty Gorgeous, and being honoured by the Queen. Her charity, Jedediah UK, supports the many people left in poverty due to the COVID-19 pandemic. With stories from Nigeria, New York, Toronto and being called Maduck in the sleepy town of Hartford, Cynthia Stroud is on the Big Travel Podcast. I, I didn't grow up rich at all. Uh, I, I grew up uh, quite poor. Um, you know, we, we didn't have, you know, new clothes or anything. Even our socks, everything was secondhand. But um, I was very, very loved as a child by my grandparents. So, um you know, education was always a big, a big, big thing. And when um, when I finished my undergrad in, in Nigeria, I went through university really, really young. So, um, you know, there's not really much you can tend to do by way of vocation. You know, if your family tries to get you into education as a, as a means to better yourself. So um, I was done with my undergrad by well I, I was in university by 15 and I was done by 20 and it was like what next so it was either get married or <laughs> try and look for something else to extend my education and I loved England I've always you know I, I remember landing in England um in the middle of winter uh it was 16th of December I remember um for my first ever trip to England and it was freezing I came out of the plane it was raining having come from 34 degrees and I just felt in love with it so I knew at some point I would want to study here or live here or whatever so um, I chose to come and do my undergrad here only had enough money for uh, for the first term for the first semester so I came on a prayer and a lot of faith and so that sort of continued so all my life, uh, you know, up until that point, I was used to having to like, you know, really, really stretch money and um, and try and make ends meet and try and pick up, you know, some income by working or doing things. So I lived on £10 a week from that point up until when I got my first job. 
Um, and yeah, it was, you know, looking back now, having got used to having more, looking back is like, oh my goodness, how did you do that? But if you didn't really know different, then it, it wasn't like, you know, a huge hardship. So when whenever I say that, for example, to my kids and they go, 10 pounds a week, I, I say to them, but you know, that 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 wasn't bad. <laughs> I'm trying to work uh, so, out what you can buy for £10 a week. I know I've had my my poor days when I was a student and working in bars. And I remember having one loaf of bread to last me all week and taking it out every day and putting it in the toaster and it getting like slightly greener and greener and greener. And, uh, and it only, I only realised years later that I could actually put the loaf of bread in the freezer and yeah. taking it out for toast every day and it would have been absolutely fine. <laughs> But I always seem to have money for cigarettes at that, that time. I don't expect now, but cigarettes and alcohol. Sorry, mum and dad. I've just realised they're going to be listening. Um, but how do you, what were you eating living off, off £10 a week? What did you actually, you must have been really creative, more creative than me with my green toast. It's funny, actually, what you, you just mentioned, you just touched on something. And do you know, till now, till literally now, um, I always automatically put bread in the freezer. Mm-hmm. And it, even when, if I've just bought it fresh, because it's a habit and I know just put it in the freezer and then you can toast it. And sometimes my kids say, my, I remember my child going to someone's house and she came back and go, mom, their bread wasn't in the freezer. <laughs> and I went, yeah, about that. Do you know, you don't actually have to put bread in the freezer, but it's just a habit from when I was, I didn't have any money. But I, you know, I ate a lot of mutton. You know, it was all I could afford. And I remember I used to go to the butchers and they used to give me this, um, you know, the only meat I could buy was the bag of mutton. And it was actually scraps. I didn't know it then. And I'm glad I didn't know at the time. Um, It was actually scraps, the offcuts. And that was what I used to use to make stews. I ate a lot of stews. I ate a lot of, uh, you know, shall we say uh, budget range pasta, which you really have to cook with your eye on the saucepan. Otherwise, it turns to starch. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. You know what was lovely about it, though, Lisa? My goodness, I was so you know in good shape because there was no threat of overeating. You know, <laughs> I had to make the food last all week. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There are. There is something. Um, I think there is something romantic about living in that sort of poverty. I, I don't I, want to sort of belittle people that you know, live with that sort of poverty forever. But there is something about striving it and thinking, well, hopefully this will be temporary. There is something about the, yeah, the sort of energy it gives you in a way. Does that make sense? It it makes complete sense. And I still feel a sense of, you know, pride and um, achievement if I make, um, you know, if I make a fixed budget last a very long time now, you know, obviously having just had a, a lockdown recently <clears throat> at the start of it, when we all couldn't go out as much as, you know, we would have normally done. Um, you know, we tried very hard in my family, my kids and I tried hard to heed the advice, just do not go out on less essential. So I remember going and doing the shopping for the first time. And I said to the kids, right, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to plan our meals. And they were very confused. And I said, no, 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 this is absolutely fine. Um, and I planned all the meals. And because I had to do it quite stringently, you know, we had more variety in terms of, you know, um, things that I might not normally have cooked. And 
It was brilliant. We actually never ran out of food. You know, it's not, it, I can say this, and I'm very, very aware that, you know, when you are living in that situation and that is your reality, um, it doesn't have that same romantic feel. It feels quite, you know, alarming because there's obviously other pressing issues surrounding you. So you can't just, you know, give yourself a pat on the back and go, there, I stretched the food. But, um, you know, given that, we all had to lock down recently. I was able to call on those, uh, you know, that experience and make food interesting and exciting. And I did a lot more cooking as well. I did a lot, more, lot, lot more cooking. I got more inventive again with recipes. Um, so yeah, it is. You know, it, it's it's not it's not a fun thing to go through if you have children, which is why I, I set up the mm. charity. Um, it's not a fun thing to do um, to go through, but. Um, if you went through it as a single person or, or in your younger days or you grew up that way, it equips you with a certain skill set that I might not have had. But that said, you know, when you have children and they're hungry, it's a yeah. very, very different ball. No, absolutely. And I remember in the in the days of, you know, complete lockdown, a lot of people were saying well, we're all in the same boat, which is true in the same sense that they were all locked down. But of course, we're not in the same boat when there's people who are living in massive houses with all their bills paid and not having to worry about where the ne- the electricity is going to come from, where the water, where the gas, where the next meal is coming from. So we're not in the same boat. We were all in the same boat in terms of being locked down, but we were all on different uh, levels of vessel, should we say. Yes. Um, let me take you back um, to Nigeria. So what was life like growing up in Nigeria? Um, the first... You know, the first 10 years of my life, or nine and a half, were, were wonderful because um, uh, I was the last of three children that my parents had. But um, at, at the time my mom was pregnant, her marriage was falling apart and she knew that. Um, so she was going to go and complete her law exams. So um, And her studies were meant to start six weeks after my due date. So as soon as I was born, I was given to my grandparents and my mom went off to to university to finish her law exams. Now, my grandparents, as grandparents tend to, um, completely indulged me. My granddad absolutely adored me. And I will always be grateful. Always, always be grateful for that. Now, my granddad was, um, you know, he was... He wasn't rich by material standards, uh, but he had quite a high status. So he was in effect almost like the you know equivalent of a mayor here um, and would often, um, you know, take on law cases on behalf of his uh, constituents or, you know, his the villagers uh, against big firms. You know, usually it was usually over land and he would almost always win. Um, but because these people couldn't afford to pay him anything, you know, he would get paid in... in in food and you know yams and goats and chickens and all that so I grew up knowing that wherever I went to people always had a smile or greeting or delighted just to see my granddad and I went everywhere with him you know he would often have me sitting under his big desk in his uh, chambers doing my homework while on the other side of the table I was hidden uh, under this desk whilst on the other side of the table were quite important meetings going on Uh, So I just grew up, you know, feeling surrounded by love and also not really, I was never afraid of, you know, status because I was used to it. 
but then he died he he uh he died of leukemia when when i was nine and a half and my grandmother couldn't cope with me on my own so on her own so i went to live with my mom which was a bit of a culture shock because a i wasn't really used to her i didn't really know her that well and um my mom was a single mom and she had my brother as well my sister had stayed with my dad and um you know i, I went from being this this pampered person that was always glued to my granddad when I wasn't in school to, you know, not having him around, A, knowing he was gone forever and B, uh, my mom just being a lot stricter and also working. So uh, those years were tough, extremely tough. Um, and I just poured myself into studying. I was a very, I felt lost a lot of my teenage years and, um, Thank God it was either boys or, or studies, and thank God I, I went with the studies part. Damn, um, I found the boys. So, I knew I, that's where I went wrong. <laughs> no, okay, listen, I did not join the convent. Let's <laughs> let's put it that way. I also discovered the boys, but uh, I think I was uh, I all I remembered that you know my granddad ever asked me to do was study. You know, do your best to come towards the top. So. In a way, looking back now retrospectively, I was just trying to do that. Uh, the boys were there, um, mm-hmm. but I also felt like, you know, I had to earn my study medal. So I was, I was um, in, in Nigeria, if you do well in school, you can skip classes. So I, I was in university before my 16th birthday and um, studied for five years. And then it was either go down the route of getting married or study a bit more, or in my mind, quite frankly, I was thinking, just see what else is out there. I'd been out, I'd been on holiday for the first time ever to to the UK, and um, when I was about seventeen, uh, which was yeah, I, I think it was just the year two thousand, and you, I loved it. You said Absolutely. you arrived in December. Now, I would always tell anyone to come to the UK for the first time in July and cross their fingers. So. Were you living in Nigeria? Were you living in a city or was it a rural location when you were with your, your grandparents? With my grandparents, we split our time between the city um, in the east and um, the weekend, which, uh, well, the, the city is weekdays. And then by the weekend, we'll go to my granddad's, um, you know, rural retreat, which was lovely. Uh, and then when I, by the time I was 10, I, I moved to Lagos, which is city city with my mom. And it, I mean, it, Lisa, it was is hot, and I know that that sounds wonderful and <laughs> exciting and exotic to to anyone in the UK, but um, it, it it doesn't actually suit everyone. And I remember that I would constantly be covered in heat rash as a child, constantly. And the first, I just thought that was how my skin was. And the first time I was in the UK, my skin was different. I was was completely confused. Um, So I'm naturally happier when it's cooler. And even, you know, I'd heard about this rain, this rain, 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 everyone told me about in the UK. (laughs) And then I came and I was like, this is not rain. Like in Nigeria, when it rains, you cannot step out. We're talking thunderstorms and, you know, roads being washed away and torrents because we have rainy season and dry season the way you have winter and summer here so the temperature is the same is 32 to 36 all year round pretty much um but when it's rainy season um you know entire roads are gone and you can't walk anywhere 
You know, so here often when it's raining, I go out for a walk and I love, I, I just love how gentle it feels. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of the complete opposite to what most people expect. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I can only imagine what it would be, uh, be arriving in that time. Why, why did you come to England? I mean, for a holiday, but was there a connection? Was there anyone here? What yes. was the story? My mom's only sister, she emigrated to UK probably when I was about five and she and her entire family. So uh, they always kept in touch. Um, you know, they always wrote letters and sent us lovely parcels of, you know, chocolates and things. And my, we also wrote our letters and also sent them, you know, parcels of you know, like Nigerian snacks and things. So there was always that link. And, you know, every letter will always be signed with, um, we look forward to seeing you. We hope to see you come on holiday. You know, and it was always, you know, things that I guess how you traditionally sign a letter. But from the time I was about 15, I started seriously considering it and saving up. And every birthday or Christmas, which are the traditional times you'd get, um, you know, presents, I would say, please don't buy me anything, please just give me money, um, which sounds very rude, you know, <laughs> I was that age, and I really wanted to go abroad, I, I really, really wanted, so everything we had, uh, and I could get, I put towards my tickets, and, uh, and I came, and it was, you know, I remember stepping out, and it was dark, and it was like the world had come to an end, from a shock perspective, because it was about five o'clock, and everyone had told me, oh, it's going to be cold. I was looking forward to seeing snow, personally. <laughs> but what no one had thought to tell me is that, unlike what I was used to all my life, in the UK, it is possible for it to be dark at 5 p.m. Now, this does not sound like a big deal now, but if you've grown up with um, a set part- pattern of the sun rises at seven o'clock the sun goes down at seven o'clock it never changes it feels a little bit like you know some sort of end of the world movie when you know it's the afternoon but it's dark so I wasn't worried about the cold I was just slightly alarmed I was like why is it dark um so that it was that was the bit that took me by surprise and um, it did something really funny to my body clock Lisa because I didn't know this, but my skadic rhythm had got used to sleeping when it's dark. So during that trip, which was about three weeks, I fell asleep every single day from about four-ish. And I didn't wake up till about nine-ish. And it was just that I was used to being asleep when it's dark. <laughs> so that, that was the bit that, you know, I could have done with a little bit more warning about. And that sounds lovely. Or this Nigerian girl uh, come over on holiday to London and you're, you're falling asleep with your circadian rhythms and crashing out by five o'clock and not waiting, waking till nine. I absolutely, I love that. There's something so, so innocent and wonderful. And funny enough, I was just telling one of my, well, my eldest son yesterday, I was saying that there's parts of the world 
that uh you know that the sunrise and sunset never changes and yeah. it's very very unusual when you are someone who's come from the UK to to go the other way around and you know in the evening at sometimes at night it can be light here until 10 o'clock at night and when you go to a warm country you expect those long evenings because you're used to warm meaning lights for longer but when you go to other countries in the world and it you know sometimes it's like bam like six o'clock that's it the sun goes down but it's still warm it, it feels really strange to adjust to yeah I, I think it's just the things that you take for granted that you didn't think about like I hadn't thought about it until you just said it now that it must actually have been be strange for anyone you know who grew up in the UK to go to Nigeria and it's warm but it's dark at seven o'clock and it that doesn't change all year round you know, at any point is going to be dark at seven o'clock. So um, it's, yeah, that, that, that was, um, that took getting used to, that really, really took getting used to. So you settled into London where obviously the streets are paved with gold. Um, how, how was life when you eventually moved back to London or moved here to the UK? Um, I, it was pretty much the same. So I, um, I went Obviously, after that holiday, I went back and studied a bit more, then finished my university studies and then came over. Um, the, first, the only place um, I could get uh, accepted to do my MBA was um, University of Buckingham because of my age. So everywhere else, every other university needed you to be over 25 and or um, have worked for two years in a in a business role so I, I knew I wanted to transit to business uh, because I didn't want to pursue microbiology anymore I, I just searched all the universities to see you know where would have set me a university of Buckingham was the only one that would so I ended up in Buckingham on my own not really knowing anyone whatsoever um, and it was it, it was lovely because um, you know if you know anything at all about Buckingham you'd know that it is it's quite a sleepy little village um, and it's, there's not many big towns around apart from Milton Keynes. So a lot of the residents are, you know, uh, either really, really young families or um, much older generation. And they loved, you know, having the students around. I got called my duck so often at first I was thinking what what's she saying what's she calling me and some people just call you how are you my doc and they would sit there and they'll listen to you for ages so you know we the, the residents in Buckingham just adopted the students and it was wonderful it really really was lovely um, so I had a, quite a gentle introduction into um into living actually living in in university in um in england um and then when i finished uh, studying when that one year was over um i applied everywhere to try and get a job but you know couldn't couldn't get a job because i was on a student visa i i wrote 111 applications eventually before i got one um one job offer which was in hartford um, but it's been, you know, it, it really was as I thought it would be. I know, you know, it's not quite the idea people have um, back home or people had back home, which was that the minute you land in England, you start picking up, you know, either gold or on a bad day, you pick up pound notes. Um, but it, the, the truth is, it is, there are just countless opportunities um, in, in this country in a way that, you know, it's easy to to take for granted. 
um, if you're willing to work hard. I mean, there are things that might happen to upset you, you know, but maybe those things could happen anywhere. But the, the fact is it, it's such a bountiful country when it comes to opportunities if you're willing to roll up your sleeves that, you know, yeah, it, I, I still, I'm still grateful that I, I came over. So you're, I mean, I do do firmly believe that, that working hard goes the wrong way. Of course, a little bit of luck and, and then bad luck can be for full people. But yeah, absolutely. This is a country of, of tremendous opportunity. Did you ever feel that being from Nigeria, did you ever feel that that held you back? Did you encounter any racism or were people overall generally quite supportive? Um, it, I think it, it, it didn't hold me back. If anything, it I feel is an advantage because um, uh, on the one hand, yes, you know, uh, to give you to give you an, an example, um, in my shop, uh, a lot of my staff were white, and people would often come in wanting to sell something to the manager, and they would ask me where the manager is. Um, you know, so that sort of racism, yes, um, there is a, a, a lot of it or people automatically making assumptions uh, about me. Um, but I found that as time went on and as I did uh, more things, that changed very, very quickly. And I feel very honoured to be in that position where I can, you know, um, not outrightly, but by my actions, change people's preconceptions about what um, what a black person is or, or does. The reason I say it's an advantage is, you know, it's well known that in business, the element of surprise is an advantage. And I think if people uh, underestimate you, that's a good thing because it's, it, it catches them unawares then when you, when you do not just what they assumed you couldn't do, but you do more. Um, I, I always feel like that's a much stronger uh, statement to make than to go around, you know, trying to like fight for your rights verbally, because then you just sound, you sound angry and, you know, words, words are cheap now. Anyone can say anything and, you know, promise or threaten anything. It's just easier to, to change the mindset by positive actions, positive, you know, empowerment actions. And I try to um, not just, I try not just to do that because I'm black, but just because I'm female. So it's, females are really, really important to me. I'm not suggesting that the males are not, but young girls, maybe because I found my, I was so lost as a teenager, I try to um, employ young female apprentices wherever possible, rather than taking really um, experienced staff whether it be they male or female, but I empathise with a lot of the rebellion and the the just the pain really that you you go through um, as a, a teenage uh, person and especially female. And I know that it's easy um, to to get drawn into thinking, well, I'll just find a, a nice rich man, uh, and in a way you become you become cartel. And I just think, well, no, actually train yourself up. And that way, when you're choosing, you're choosing someone because you really, really like them. And don't think that because you don't have the right education or whatever, that you cannot make a good life for yourself. Because ironically, for all my education, um, I've actually done postgraduate studies, but for all my education, the, the thing that I'm well known, the thing that made me um, some money is cake, which 
was a skill I picked up as a kid baking, um, you know, and then honed myself. So I tried to impart that message. And I think it's being female still to this date that um, we still face some prejudice against, you know, Lisa. Recently, I went to buy a piece of equipment, two pieces of equipment. One was £10,000, one was £8,000. And the gentleman said to me, I'm not going to sell you the £8,000 because I don't think you're ready yet. I'll see how you get on with the £10,000 one. Now, I know that if I'd been male, he would not have made that statement, but he didn't know anything about me. And he patronized me to my face. And I didn't say anything. I thought, it's fine. I will go off with this. I will do a lot and I will come back. Um, Not to prove a point to you, but just because, you know, if I walked off there and said whatever, or wrote a bad review, all I've done is further embed whatever stereotype he's got in his mind. But you, you win people by your actions and you change people's opinions by your actions, not by your words. So that's, that's my view of, um, you know, I'm pleased to be in a country where there's so much progress has been made in terms of both of those stereotypes, being black or being female. But I think, you know, just make use of every opportunity to show people the good, you know, in whatever they were expecting you to be rather than... yeah. I do I do see that to a certain extent, but I also see how it must be exhausting sometimes to feel that you have to represent a, a whole race, you know, by being nice. And I agree, it's nice to be nice anyway, but it, it just, I do the same. I, I'm mixed race, half, half Indian, Fijian and half English. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can, I can pass for lots of different nationalities. In fact, people assume I'm all sorts of different nationalities, but I feel the weight of it. You know, I feel when I'm, when I'm dressed up and speaking nicely and, you know, doing, going about business, I feel that I've got nothing to prove necessarily. But it's like if I throw on a tracksuit to go to the shop in the morning, which I should be entitled to do as well, yeah. I do actually feel that I have to use my best voice. I have to, <laughs> you know, use my sharpest accent because I can speak nicely when I want to. That I have to, um, that I have to, you know, really smile and make an effort. And most of the time I would smile and make an effort anyway, but I yeah. do feel... I don't know if other people feel that. I don't, I don't know. Okay. You know, what you've just said is 100% true. I, um, I'll be honest, but, you know, it, I, by contrast, I don't really notice normally when people are actually being um, mean to me. I, I have, I, I think I've got divine grace in that aspect that I, it, people around me tend to get indignant on my behalf. And it isn't until later that I sit back and go, hold on, actually, that wasn't right. And thank God for that. Maybe I would be reacting a lot more. Um, so I don't feel like I've got to perform a certain way. I'm just naturally, you know, naturally positive. I'm like, yay, about most things. Um, but having said that, there's some things I just wouldn't do. You know, like um, what you said about tracksuit, just because of that stereotype that I know people have. For example, I never ever leave the house wearing tracksuit bottoms even though you know that is my default when I'm at home tracksuit bottoms or something really comfortable and I always put on makeup you know no even to go on a school run and I think it's just because I am so aware that um yeah that is a stereotype but I hadn't thought about that until just now that you're speaking because someone said to me how come you always have time to do it and I'm like well that's just like I've got to do it before stepping out but maybe I wouldn't have felt like that if I yeah I you've made me think now Lisa oh that's why that's what I do I'm glad I made you think (laughs) no I I 
there's, uh, you know, you don't know whether if you're the white person in the tracksuit in the morning that people are going to judge you as well and think you're likely to be shoplifting. But you do hear, you do hear stories of people who are, you know, black and of, yeah. of mixed heritage or the mi minority heritage in, in this country, at least that feel that, you know, they're being judged a little bit or followed around the, the shop or the supermarket yes. more than other people. You, you just don't know because you're not that other you are who you are and you, we just don't know do we but uh, you do you do definitely hear those stories now I haven't spoken that much about travel but you of course Nigeria is a place of travel and you traveled to the UK and coming to live here is something really new and exciting and different and scary and confusing but have you have you managed to travel elsewhere is travel something that you find important to you I love to travel. I, I love not just to travel, but I think what I realize about myself is I don't just want to visit places. I want to make each place a little bit of home. Um, so I, um, you know, we, we, I've taken my kids, you know, to, um, to a little bit of Europe, you know, Spain, France, etc., uh, and Portugal. But with each place, what we try and do is we try and go back to the same places. So we're not so much sightseers is what I noticed because we're not necessarily interested in seeing the, the landmarks, but we, I would tend to take them to, um, you know, like a little village there and we want to eat where the natives eat. We want to embed ourselves in a lot of what they do. Um, and I, I, go out to Canada for, for filming. Um, and while I'm there, I don't want necessarily want to go and see the sites. I want to do what, you know, I, I want to almost absorb what life is like there. Um, so it, it's, it's not, um, I'm not so much of a, uh, you know, of a, of a tourist as I think there's a part of me that wants to soak in as much of what life is like in, in different places, but I do love to travel. I get so excited when it's, you know, get your stuff and pack everything. And I start learning the language. I'm, I'm very, very fascinated by language. I love, love, love languages. And I always try and pick up a little bit of wherever I'm going before I get there so I can converse. And I think that makes life so much easier because then people bend over backward you know, to, uh, to, to help you and to make you feel at home because they can see you're making an effort in, um, you know, in getting to know them and, uh, and getting to live like they live. Uh, I, I love travel. Where has really stood out to you? Where places that you've been to? Uh, I love Portugal. I love Spain as well. You know, Madrid. And when I go, all I, all I go there and do is, you know, sit in the square and eat you know, tapas all day long. Um, so it's not, uh, it's not so much, you know, the far flung islands necessarily that, that get my attention. It's, yeah, it's just places where, you know, where people are, people embrace you straight away. Uh, I will go to the big cities. I will go to New York and, you know, for work or, or Toronto and stuff. But again, you know, is, is that, is that difference? I think what makes it feel like home is how the people are to you. New York is lovely. You know, it's great for shopping, etc. cetera. Um, but when I went to Toronto, what stood out to me was straight away uh, landing and being, you know, picked up by the friendliest, um, 
you know, uh, how, would, how would you say, you know, these people that pick you up at the airport, by the friendliest person. And he just talked nonstop. Now, not in a way that you could tell he was just trying to pass time, but, you know, genuinely interested in, in me and, you know, trying to tell me all the good places to eat and all that. And from that minute, I felt at home. So the people make a big, big difference. You know, the, if people are friendly and welcoming, then, yeah, I want to go back there over and over again. And cake is very important, isn't it? I had this conversation with Lem, Lem Cisse, the poet um, who comes from, well, his a birth family were Ethiopian, but he's from the north of England. And he first travelled to Germany when he was uh, 19, I think, for his first poetry trip and has been travelling ever since. And um, we had a conversation about the cake in different country and how almost cake represents a national feel and a national vibe. And actually, I'm very proud of our cakes here in the UK. I love, love, love foreign food, but I think that we have some of the best cakes in the world here. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Um, not just cakes, but I'd say treats in general. So um, I think probably let's just call it whatever you do with flour. Um, so be it, you know, little donuts or, or, or cakes. Cause, and I know why that is, because I've had uh, quite some time to think about what, why I do what I do and what, what makes it so special, what makes it beyond just earning money. And it's because... The cake represents the best of all your memory. You know, um, some time ago, people tried to bring in, you know, I got asked to make divorce cakes and all that. And I put my foot down. I said, no, you know, because I just thought, no, let's not ruin it now. You know, cake symbolizes happy times. It symbolizes um, birthdays and family being together. It symbolizes weddings. It just symbolizes everyone you like in a room. And, you know, it also symbolizes putting something in, in an oven and coming out with, you know, that anticipation, having your house filled with lovely smells. And I don't know if anyone has ever like baked a cake uh, and eaten it and been still been as sad as they were before they started. So, you know, there's a story behind every cake, uh, I feel, every cake recipe. And when I go to places, and I, even if it's like things like churros in, in Spain or, or um, you know, the little donuts in, in Portugal, if it's made to an authentic recipe, usually not by the most fancy place, you know, just some uh, a housewife or a mum, and you taste it fresh, it is amazing because they often will spontaneously tell you the, the history behind it, you know, their little twist on it. And any baker, anybody that works really passionately with flour is always, you can't shut them up about their recipe. So it's an instant bonding thing, you know. Um, if my son's out with me and anybody starts talking about baking, you know what, he's too polite to actually sigh audibly, but his shoulders slump because he knows it's going to be a long conversation. Um, because people are not just telling you about their baked wares, they're telling you a little bit of their family history. You know, they're telling you um, what that thing they're baking and they're giving to you represents. And it's, it's such an offering from the heart, you know. It's not a fancy thing, you know. I'm not so interested in what someone's chef has baked them. I'm interested in what they've baked themselves because that's that comes from a, you know, recently judging a, a, a baking competition, the first, the first uh, challenge was for people to, to uh, bake what represents them and, uh, and tell us why. 
that sort of encapsulates all of what baking means to people because there's a lot of people were baking from a place of pain a lot of people were baking to celebrate people who were no longer there people were baking you know recipes from generations and it's it is you know you've got to treat that with respect that's why you know I I think baking's in my blood and thank God that I came to England that has so much that you can do with flour. You know, you could bake a different cake if you wanted to every day of the week and not ex- ex- or every day of the year. I'm not exhausted. There's so much, you know, there's so much history in the baking. It's yeah, I, I feel really fortunate. I love that. Baking is from the heart. And I mean, I am a terrible baker and a terrible cook, but I can I can cobble together a couple of cakes. But the one thing I can do well is uh, banana bread. But I can also do my nan's scones and my nan is no longer with us. But I think that encapsulates exactly what you're talking about. Baking is about remembering people, family recipes, celebration and sitting down afterwards and eating the cake together. It's um, you can't be sad when you're eating cake. Yes. Lovely. Well, I'm going to ask you my last question now. And my last question is always about music, because I believe that music and travel go very much hand in hand. And if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what is that song and what is the memory? Gosh, how can you do this to me? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Okay. So my granddad didn't listen to much music, actually. I, didn't, I don't even remember him ever playing music. We had live music a lot, um, you know, at events and things, but that was, that was about it. But um, now my mom, on the other hand, uh, loved music, and she used to listen to Harry Belafonte, um, and he has got the most cheeky lyrics. Now, we didn't, um, you know, we didn't have much, uh, but on a Saturday morning, you finish all your chores, and we always had pancakes on a Saturday morning, um, which, like, these are Nigerian pancakes, so a, a mixture. They're more like donuts, really, than pancakes and fried. And then we'll put on Harry Belafonte. So it was Coconut Woman. Oh, yes. <laughs> Who's calling out? And I, that, I think that was about the first song whose lyrics I learned from start to finish. So this question's, you know, this question's caught me entirely on the hop, and I'm, I'm glad actually you didn't give me more time. Otherwise, I would have come up with a much more polished answer. But make of that what you will, because that is the song that wherever I hear Harry Belafonte now, I'm transported back to being about thirteen or fourteen in my mom's second floor flat. Windows open, the floor drying because it's just been mopped. And Harry Belafonte is singing about a coconut woman. Oh, I love that. See, this is why I love this question, because it just gets the most unusual answers out of people and makes you think. And I'm glad I got you on the hoof without actually thinking about it. Oh, you're going to make me play it now. <laughs> um, do you know what? I'm going to make myself play it. I am going to make myself play it. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Same here, Lisa. Thank you so very much for having me. You're very, very easy to talk to. And, oh, thank um, you. Yeah, I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you so much, Cynthia, and thank you for listening to The Big Travel Podcast. We'll be back very, very soon with some more fantastic guests.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.